You will say in the day, I, give, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Well, the one word I had this morning was burr. <laughs> Confession time, who put on your heat this morning? A few people. My wife only let me do it for like five minutes, and I was just miserable the whole time. Well, if you don't know who I am, my name is Jacob. I have the privilege of serving here at our church, and I want to start us off this morning with a question, kind of a, a trip down memory lane for us all. And the way we're going to get to our own personal memory lane is I want you to come up or to think of a song that is meaningful to you. I'm going to give you a minute for that. So a song that's meaningful to you. So this could be a song that maybe makes you cry, or a song that makes you laugh or makes you feel joyful. Uh, maybe it's a song that brings you to a different place, a bit different time in life. So just for a minute, think about a special song, okay? All right, so we're not going to spend time like going around saying, oh, my song was this and this was this. But I, would inc- I think it would be fun for us to all sometime think about and share that song that came to mind and why that song in particular is so meaningful to each of us. And the reason I'm bringing up music this morning is because music has power, uh, even as, as we were kind of thinking about that special song that's meaningful to us, it was kind of cool just to look around and see some of your guys' faces. There were definitely emotions that were coming through as you were thinking about that song. Because music has this unique way of reaching our hearts. It has this ability to articulate thoughts and ideas that other, otherwise we would often find difficult to express. Uh, we see this in different various genres of music. Because uh, some genres of music are extremely emotionally charged. I think one of the best examples is Screamo. Now, personally, I don't listen to Screamo. I don't really care to get yelled at as I'm driving in the car. But what I've come to appreciate about Screamo music is that in this genre, in these songs, the, the artists are expressing these strong feelings and emotions in very real ways. And for these bands, for these artists, they don't feel like they could express these, their, these deep, raw feelings with a nice string quartet and some gentle singing. It just doesn't fit their message. So it's, it's in these songs that we can express, we can sh- actually show the desires of our hearts. We can show our hopes and our dreams and the things that are most important to us. I think in a very real sense, what we sing about and what we write about is what matters most to us. Which is why a passage like Isaiah 12 is actually so meaningful and helpful to us when we think about music. Because in this passage, singing is a major theme. It brings up this idea of, talk, of lifting up an important message in song. And it's a song that we should actually be singing to ourselves. It's a song that we should be singing to those around us. And what we're going to see in Isaiah 12 is that this is the most important song, the greatest song in all of history. And that's the song of salvation. 
right? Isaiah talks about how we're supposed to, in some very real ways, almost write this song onto our hearts, that we're supposed to sing it to ourselves over and over again. And we're supposed to sing it to our children, to our neighbors, to our friends. And we're supposed to, to use the language of Jesus. We're actually supposed to sing this song to everyone who has ears to hear. So what we're going to do this morning, I think we're going to have a little fun together, is we're going to use some musical language to help us make sense of this passage and this song of salvation. Now, I do want to assure you, though, you have no need to fear because I will not be breaking out into song at any time. Um, I did think a rock opera sermon would be pretty awesome, but I don't play guitar or sing that well. So we're just going to stick to the words. But so the way we're going to do it this morning is we are going to begin our study by learning the lyrics of the song of salvation. And after we nail down the lyrics of this song, we're going to learn the tune to it. And if you're musically accurate, if I offend you, I'm sorry, but um, this is what I got. And then, so we're, so we're going to learn the lyrics, we're going to learn the tune, and then what we're going to do is we're going to put the two together in order to sing the song that God has written for us. And what we're going to see this morning is that Isaiah 12 teaches us that the song of salvation is to be sung with joy and thanksgiving. If you're not quite sure what that means yet, just stick with me. I promise it will make sense. So we're going to start with the lyrics, and we see the lyrics in verses 1 and 2. Because from what I understand, you can't really sing a song well if you don't know the lyrics. So our lyrics are contained in the first two verses of the chapter. The first chapter starts with, you will say in that day. We're going to already stop right there. Because there's already two things that need to be immediately pointed out. First is that this chapter, this song, has implications and has applications to our lives. I think it's, also, it's very important that we remember and we're aware and mindful of the fact that there are some passages in the Bible that aren't written directly to us, in the sense that Isaiah was writing to a, an original audience and the people of Judah, and that there are some passages in the Bible where, um, particularly in the, in the narrative sections, which we're not to understand when the word you is, you is there, that that means automatically us, right? When, when God was speaking directly to David, saying, you will do this, we should understand that to mean, like, that's directly our person. But that's not the case here. The you that's mentioned in verse 1 directly impacts us and includes us in Isaiah 12. So this passage has implications and applications for our lives. Second, this, that, in this little verse, that day is a reference to the day of salvation. Now, Isaiah, he likes, he likes this little phrase. He likes this little phrase, that day. He uses it multiple times leading up to chapter 12. He actually uses it twice in chapter 11. And this phrase, again, this, this is a short little, easy to miss. That day has a couple different meanings behind it. So first, there is a historical element to it. The nation of Judah, which is who Isaiah was writing to, he, they would eventually fall to the Babylonian Empire. The prophets of God, time and time and time again, they warned the people of God that because of their disobedience, they would be eventually lead to ruin, but the people repeatedly disobeyed God. You know, God sent a prophet, they didn't listen. Sent another one, they didn't listen. And as a result of their repeated disobedience and rebellion, Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C. But God promised that he would, those people would someday return from exile, that they would be returned to their homeland, and that this return, this physical return, would be viewed as a day of salvation, 
the day when the nation of Judah would be restored. So that day refers to it, it definitely has a historical component to it. But there's also an eternal component to this that day phrase, and that one, that's one that equally applies to us as well. Because the people of Judah, the people of Israel, and us, we require salvation for our souls. That's because every one of us has rebelled against the king of the universe. That we have broken the law of God more times than we can count. And we, a lot of us can count pretty high. We are deserving of eternal punishment for our crimes, which means that when there's this day that day referring is a day of judgment, and that's coming, whether, and it comes either when we die or when Jesus physically returns at the end of the world. And on that day, we will be required to give an account. So the question is then, what are we going to say on that day? What am I going to say to the Almighty, the Holy, the Just, the Perfect, Righteous God? What am I going to say to this God when my sin rap sheet wraps out the door and around the corner? Like, what are we going to say? If I'm a Christian, the words that come out on that day, when I'm st- kneeling on my knees, ashamed of this rap list that's going out the door, the only words I can truly say are thank you. If we want to use the verbiage of the passage, I give thanks to you, O Lord. Why will the Christian thank God? And I, I think the answer is clear. It's the second verse, or second half of verse one, because of what it teaches us about God. That for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Ooh. That is an amazing verse, and it's quickly becoming one of my favorites in the Bible. I love it because it's an incredible snapshot of the gospel message, this message of salvation. This verse shows us that God is fully engaged in his world that he has made. That God cares about what's going on in our lives. That we don't have a God who's indifferent, but he's engaged. And that means that our physical actions, our words, our deeds, even our mindsets matter to him. God doesn't give us his word, his law, to give us some ideas of how we're supposed to model our lives. The Bible isn't a series of life hacks that help us get along. God gave us his word, he's given us his law, so that our world will have order. He's given us these things that we know how we're supposed to live, so that our lives actually have true meaning and true purpose. God's word protects us. And if we're true to his word, if we understand it as the way it should be intended to be understood, we realize that God's way is truly the best and truly the only way to live. And it angers God when we go against his way, against his purposes. And that's not because he's some insecure person who gets frustrated because we're not listening to him. But God's anger because he is our father who loves us. He's the father who sees the the foolishness of our disobedience. He's the father who sees that all rebellion against him, all it does is lead to pain and to turmoil. Sin, which is just a fancy word for rebellion against God, 
Sin never, may feel right in the moment, but it's never going to lead to our ultimate reward or satisfaction. God the Father is angry at us for our sin. And what we need to realize is that his anger is a righteous one and it's justified. And that we are not innocent even though we would like to think that we are. But it's at this point where the God of the Bible differs from every single God of, and every other idol of every other world religion. Because though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. This shift from anger to comfort doesn't happen overnight because we just suddenly get our acts together. This shift from anger to comfort is entirely an act and a mercy of, of God's mercy. That this shift is an act of God's love as he looks down at us, us who are very much lost and defeated by our sin, and he willingly chose to comfort us. One of the best ways I like to think about it is in kind of in court terms. We understand that God is the judge. He's sitting on the judge's seat. And, but he's also the same one who the crimes have been committed against. That he's sitting on the box on the other side of us. And yet, God the judge comes down from his judge's box. He sits down beside us. He puts his arm around us. He comforts us. He tells us that he loves us. And then he proceeds that he declares he's going to pay our punishment. That the God of the universe, this judge, will pay the punishment for the great debt that we owe. And this isn't just a sweet picture that I want to make sure we have to go home thinking about on our way home because it just makes us feel nice, and, nice inside. But this is actually what Jesus has done for us. That God himself, the judge, has come down and he's given himself up for us. That Jesus paid the death of a criminal in order to save us. To give us that ultimate comfort and that ultimate peace. And one of the best things about this gospel message is that we receive this comfort not by doing X, Y, and Z, or not knowing the right people, not going to church a certain amount of times, but we receive this comfort by simply asking for it. Understanding that we don't deserve it, but that God freely offers this salvation to all who ask for it. Many of you this morning have, have asked and you've received this salific work of Christ, which means like the Israelites, like the people of Judah, you have a historical day of salvation. I'm sure, I know that some of you can clearly remember that day. You may remember the time, the place, and what you were wearing on your day of salvation. That date might be written in your first little Bible with, you know, where Noah's, Noah and all the animals were just loving each other. It was great. But some of you haven't received that judge's pardon. You don't have the historical day of salvation yet. But that's not because it hasn't been offered to you. You don't have that because you haven't asked for it. Friends, our sin records are great. 
I know that because my record goes out that door and comes back around the other side. But the mercy of Jesus is greater than every single one of our sins, meaning that no one is too far gone, that your neighbor who you just can't stand, who's a horrible sinner, you know that, they know that, they're not too far gone either. So what I'm asking today, if you don't have the historical days, I want you to make today, the last day of 2023, your historical day of salvation. So that when this, this final judgment day comes, you know, either when you die or when Jesus physically returns, that you can join the Christians from all of history, come together, and you can say, I give thanks to you, O Lord. So that you can join the rest of us as we're singing in the, and we continue singing the lyrics of our verse 2. You can, continue, you can sing with us that, that God is our salvation. That he's not a, a partial savior, but he is the sole savior. That he is a savior who we can have a personal relationship with. Who we can, in a very real way, call our friend. Who we can freely approach at any time in prayer. Because he is my savior. He is your savior. And there's no salvation without him. Our, the song continues with, with the next phrase, I will trust and I will not be afraid. Man, do we need to be singing that one to ourselves over and over again. I will trust and I will not be afraid. Because how often do we let our current circumstances and our fears about what's to come, how often do we let, let those dictate the way that we live our lives? There are so many times in life where it just feels like the weight of the world is sitting on our shoulders. So, of course we fear. I mean, how could we not? But friends, this passage isn't teaching us that we're supposed to put our trust in ourselves, our own finances, our own strengths, our own abilities, our own efforts. This song is encouraging us and calling us to trust in the Savior. The risen Lord who's not rotting in a tomb in the Middle East but he who is alive and he's advocating on the throne on our behalf even right now. I was blessed growing up with a, a rich Christian history, heritage on my, on my mom's side, and I distinctly remember my grandfather loved one of the Gaither songs. I know some of you guys are familiar with Gaithers. And they, they had a song years ago they wrote that was called Because He Lives. Probably many of you are familiar with that. And I thought that that verse just fit hit home in this theme. That song says, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth living just because he lives. I think they nailed that one. Verse 2 doesn't call us to turn a blind eye to what worries us. I think sometimes that's a misconception for Christians. It's like, oh, I believe in Jesus, so it means I can't fear about what's happening around me. That's not at all scriptural. What this passage, this song is teaching us is that we are called to trust in the one who holds our future, the one who is our strength, who is our song, because he is our salvation. He is the one that we should be singing about. All right, so that's, that's our lyrics. We have our lyrics now. Verse 1 and 2, sing that over and over again. 
So now we're going to move on to the tune portion. Again, if, I'm, if you're like, that's not actually correct musically, I'm sorry, but tune sounds right. So tune we find in verse 3. Verse 3 says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So how are we supposed to sing this song of salvation? With joy. In fact, with an overwhelming sense of joy. Because God has saved us, that he has taken upon himself his own wrath, that he has taken us out of the pit destined for hell, the place for eternal suffering, and he has prepared a place for us in heaven, which is a place with no suffering and no pain, where we will be with our Savior for eternity. Oftentimes when I'm preparing a message, I kind of get stuck like two or three songs just going, cycling through. And one of them for this round was Jesus, Thank You by Sovereign Grace. And they have this little line in one of their songs that said, Once your enemy, now seated at your table. That is a wonderful picture of the gospel. We were destined for hell. We were God's enemies. We've rebelled against him. And now he says, I have prepared a place for you in heaven. I have a room set aside for you and I'm seating you at your table. That's the truth of the gospel. And this truth can only be sung to the tune of joy and of gratitude. I love the language in this passage that, the, that the Isaiah uses of wells, because it has some clear connections to the New Testament and to notably to the life of Jesus. I think one of the most common, or the one that stands out most to me is John chapter 4. Uh, John chapter 4 is a familiar passage to many of us. Oftentimes it gets titled something along the lines of the woman, Jesus and the woman at the well. Then in this passage, Jesus meets a woman of Samaria who were viewed as you know, the bad people and he, at noon, and he asks her for a drink from the well. Now this type of encounter would have been strained for multiple reasons. But the most prominent reason why this was strange, that Jesus would interact with this woman, was this woman's past. There was a reason that this woman was meeting, going to the well at noon, at the hottest point of the day, when no one else was around. This woman was an outcast. She was viewed by every single person in that village as a sinful woman who was not to be associated with. And yet here's Jesus, the, the perfect God-man, who has no sin at all. He's speaking to her like she has value. Jesus knew who she was. She knew every single thing she'd ever done. And yet Jesus chose to look at her with compassion. And because of his great compassion, he offered her living water. In John 4, 4, it says, water that would actually become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, what, so what's happening here? What, what's going on? Why, is Jesus just giving this woman some nice pictures for her, you know, just to make her feel nice? No, what Jesus is doing is he's offering her the gift of salvation. To this woman who is viewed as a lost cause by every single person, we shouldn't even look at her or talk to her. Jesus is offering water from the well of salvation. And how does this woman respond to this salvation? By accepting it with joy. 
by, by actually leaving behind her physical water jar at this well. And she runs into town, and she says to everyone she comes into contact with, come see a man who has told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? In other words, could this be, this person, be the promised Savior who we've all been waiting for? This woman believed, and because of her testimony, many other people in that village came to believe as well. So a question I want us to ask ourselves is if we are responding to the work of God like this woman, because we've been given access to the same well of salvation, this well of eternal and everlasting water, this living water, how often are we going to that well? Now, uh, now I don't want to confuse us here. Um, we only have one day of salvation. We're not to, supposed to understand this verse as meaning that we're supposed to be going back to God for salvation every other month. Uh, God's kingdom is not Costco. We need to renew our membership every year. The Bible is clear that once someone is truly saved, then he or she is saved. That there's in the, one of the most amazing things is that no, there's nothing that even we can do to lose that status of saved. In Reformed theology, we, this is known as the perseverance of the saints, that God keeps those he's, he's saved. So, so this language of drawing water from the well does include that initial request for salvation, right? that his, kind of referring to that historical day of salvation where we ask for God's mercy. But this passage also reminds us, and it serves as a reminder, that there will never be a day when we don't need God. We need the well. We need the living water of Christ. It's so easy for us to fall into this mindset that, that God is this sort of genie or this personal assistant, that he's, he's around when we need him, but he's not really necessary for our daily, daily lives. But this passage is clear in saying that there will not, never be a moment in our lives when we will not need God, that we are completely dependent on Him, that just as we can't live without water, we cannot live if we are not connected to the well of salvation. However, though, there are definitely moments in seasons in life, for me, I'm sure for you, when God feels distant, Times when I don't necessarily feel connected to a well, to this living water, when I don't feel connected to God. So what are we supposed to do in those seasons? Seasons that some of us may be in right now. What I want to do is I want to give us three simple ways that to grow closer to God. There's nothing revolutionary about any of these. All of these should be obvious to most of us, but I think it's always important that we are reminded of them. So three ways how to grow closer to God. First, we, if you, we want to hear from God, we need to be reading from his word. Again, not revolutionary. In our country, in our day and age, we really have no excuse to not be reading the Bible. We have dozens of reliable and accurate translations. We have audio versions, we have apps, we have websites. We have all different ways to access God's word. That in God's word, the Bible, is more accessible to us now than it's ever been at any point in history. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, so many of us neglect to read it or to listen to it. You know, we, we make the argument for time. iPhone is this annoying thing where it tracks how much time you spend on your phone, and 
you know, we don't want to talk about that. But we neglect to read it, we make excuses. I think sometimes there's also a real sense that we want a dream or we want a vision or I want to hear an audible voice of God speaking to me. That if God were to speak to me as I'm sitting by the river, if I could hear his voice, then I'll start feeling close to him. Then I'll start listening to him and doing what he's calling me to do. But if you read through redemptive history, if you read through the Bible, you'll notice that visions and hearing this auditory voice of God is actually a rarity, not the norm. That some of our greatest heroes of the Bible, kind of thinking the Hebrews 11 list, these people rarely heard a God speaking directly to them in the way we're thinking. So we actually have an advantage to these men and women in the Bible because we have the entirety of it. That while you know, Moses was in the process, he had this great connection with God and these other heroes, but they had portions of God's word. They had portions of his revelation. We have all 66 books of it. We have God's whole inspired word, which is called active and alive. So we must never undervalue what we have been given. That if we want to hear from God, we need to read his word. God is speaking to us. We need to ask ourselves if we are listening. Another way to grow, if we can grow closeness to God is that through the gift of prayer. That we've been given the opportunity to approach the throne of grace. To go to this well of salvation where we can meet with and we can speak with our Savior. However, I know that I take that opportunity for granted. I know that I'm not intentional enough in my prayer life. And when I go through periods of my life where my prayer life is just lackluster, I'm not spending intentional time in it, I tend to feel distant from God. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that we feel like our relationship with God isn't growing if we're not speaking to him. I mean, think about it. None of our relationships with anyone grow or flourish without communication. So we should not expect that our relationship with God is going to be any different in that sense. So as we're entering into a season of resolution, adjustments change, get till Valentine's Day and then a call good, let's make a resolution today to make time, to make, to make time each week, each day for intentional time of prayer. We will grow closer to God if we do. And one last practical tip of how to grow closer to God as we sing. This whole time we've been kind of using this language and verbiage of songs and how powerful music can be. And now I want to commend to you that singing praises to God is one of the best ways we can grow closer to him. That singing, when we sing songs of God's faithfulness, of his love, his mercy, and all of his wonderful deeds, we will grow closer to him. Even in Paxton's prayer, he was talking about some of, you know, even like kind of the, the Advent season with, with Simeon and Mary, what did they do when they experienced the wonders of God? They sang. We should be following suit. Add some worship songs to your playlist. Listen as you're getting ready in the morning. Listen in the car as you go to work or on the way to school. Make it so that your house is just full of the songs of God all the time. I challenge you to make it so that your grandkids remember that one song that stood out to you. My grandfather loved because he lives, and I will never forget that. I challenge you guys to do the same. Make there be songs in your lives that your kids will be like, oh, that was mom's favorite. 
So add those songs, and then I encourage you to sing along. And the best part is that we actually have one more song later today that we can sing. So let's start off on the right foot. So this morning, we learned about the lyrics of the Song of Civilization. We learned the tune, but now we've got to put it all together. Now, you'll notice in this passage in verses 4 through 6 that there's a noticeable progression that takes place. In verses 1 through 3, the, the, verse, the, the, the language is very self-focused. It says, you will say in that day, I give thanks. So Isaiah is saying, you will say, I give thanks. But in the second half of this passage, we see that we're no longer supposed to be speaking to ourselves. We're supposed to be speaking to others. The verse says, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. We have been given the song of salvation for the purpose of sharing with other people. We're not called to sing in the shower on this one. We're called to sing it out loud so people can hear. We're supposed to share the wonderful, joyous news that even though we have sinned against God, that we have been his enemy, he's looked on us with love, and that his anger has turned to comfort. So that if we put our faith in him, we can be welcomed into eternal paradise with our Savior. If I'm a Christian, this song has become the song of my life. The song that I'm called to, to join others with in praising God for his wonderful works, just like the woman at the well did. And who should we be sharing the song with? Verse 5 tells us, all the earth. This passage reminds us that the well of salvation has been opened up to the world, that the gates of heaven are open wide, that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and culture are invited in if they trust in Jesus Christ. And while we tend to think that, that sharing the message of Jesus is the work of foreign missionaries, there's no such qualifications given in this passage. It tells us that if I am a Christian, I am a missionary with a song to sing. And that there are people in our lives who need to hear about the greatness of God. And if you're not sure how to do that well, start by sharing what God has done in your life. Share the different ways that Christ has worked and changed you. And don't forget to share it with joy. So we share our own stories and then we can share how and we can show them how he can do the same in theirs. We can show them how the God of the Bible is the God who is in the midst of his people. Our, God, our song is not about a God who is unknowable. Our song is not about a God who is indifferent. Our song is not about a God who is unjust or arrogant or clueless or powerless. The song that we have the privilege to sing is about the one true God who holds the universe in his hands who tells the planets and the stars where they're supposed to go, but at the same time, he is in our midst. That he is drawn near to us because of his great love for us, and we will, he will never abandon us. I thought there was only one way to, that makes sense to close out a message like this, and that's with a song. Um, so what I want to do is I want to leave us with the lyrics of the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Uh, it's a wonderful song. It was actually at my wedding. Danny reminded me the other day that I was actually at the boys' baptism, too. So it's a really special song. Um, but just let me leave us with this. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. 
He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Uh, Say this last verse with me, please. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are no longer your enemies, but we are your friends. We are your children. We are ones you are welcoming into your kingdom with open arms. Lord, if there is someone in this room who does not have this historical day of salvation yet, make December 31st be that day. And help us to all share this message, this song, with those around us, Lord, with joy. Help us to show that it's not just something that they need, but it's something that we all need, and that it is a wonderful thing to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. We pray as we, we, we sing and we close at our service, Lord, may we just sing this with pride, with joy, and just be empowered and equipped to this as we go into this new year. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.